0: I'm sure all of you guys are kind of thinking, what is going on here? We're talking about wedding vows and a uh, little bit of decoration here, a little bit of wedding cake and things. So I don't know, do you guys like wedding cake this early in the morning? Uh, I'm not so much with it myself, I'll be honest with you. I already said I'll take some home. I don't know if I can do it for breakfast, but one of those things. But good cake, good punch. Um, but you know, you guys all know the month of uh, June is a wedding month, right? Everybody usually just says, oh, June, it's the wedding month. Everybody wants to get married in June. And uh, there's a lot of different reasons why people want to get married in June. One is because actually the month of June is named after the Roman goddess Juno. That's who actually uh, is named after. And it's supposedly, if you believe that sort of thing, it's a goddess that will bring you prosperity and happiness to everyone who weds in the month of June. So... How many people are married in June? Really? Well, there's quite a bit. See, a lot of people do get married in June. So then there's that. You know, so we have the idea that there's this goddess that will bless us. And then there's this practicality reasons why um, people get married in June. Basically because the bride was then likely to give birth to her first child in spring, which meant that if she'd have plenty of time to recover so she was ready for harvest, you know, she was done she could just start going out there in the fields, and that baby slung over her back, and she could work, you know. That's just what a, how it worked. Also, June signifies what? Warmer weather, which meant annual bath. Annual bath for people. It was like they went and had their annual bath, and they're ready. They're smelling fresh. They're, this good. I'm glad society has changed a bit for that. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, so in the past, weddings and picking your weddings really had more to do with... Um, practicality and other reasons besides just because there was a certain flowering season or a season that you wanted to get married or something like that. And uh, it was definitely more of a practical thing. That's why April, November, and December were also favored because it wasn't around harvest. October, it's harvest. It's all about the harvest. I was married in October. (laughs) Anybody else out there in October? I'll tell you, it's one of those things. We got married October 15th and... uh, but not, not married to a farmer, so that's okay. We can do that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of superstitions, a lot of times that people have with certain months and certain days and things, the reason why they'll get married. Some things, will no, I never get married on that date for a reason. And did you know that there was some superstition about the month of May? Do you guys ever hear that? Is there anybody out there that's been married in May? Yeah? Okay. So we have one. Well, I hate to tell you this hate to tell you this but actually the superstition about may is it's really considered unlucky yeah it says marry in may and rue the day rue the day by the way just let me tell you something i want to bring that phrase back i rue the day i want to i want to bring that back if i can just because it has such power doesn't it anything you get mad about i rue the day that ever happened i want to bring it back but marry Mary in and May and rue the day, the old saying goes. But marry in September shine, and your living will be rich and fine. Any September weddings? We're running out of married couples anyway. <laughs> Got a lot of young people <laughs> and single people here. So anyway, um, you know, I kind of wonder with that Mary and May thing. Do you think Mary and May bridal shop knew that? Don't know if you really want to name your bridal shop Mary and May. Maybe. She should have thought about that. I mean, the girl already had a west Cox fire and had to move her belly, so it might not be good. I'm teasing, of course. My daughter had her wedding, uh, got her wedding dress there, and the place, and the new place is beautiful, too. So, and I don't believe in that sort of thing, anyway. Of course, we have climate issues. I mean, anybody knows what it's like outside weddings? I'm going to tell you, I did one yesterday in rain, wind. I'm I'm over the weddings outside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> not too thrilled. Um, in the South, April is more favored over June because of, the, of course, the heat. You know, they wanted to get through that before the uh, heat comes. And, I um, mean, obviously, Alaska. I don't, I don't really think they probably have many outside weddings, do you think? Not too many, unless you're really bundled up. All wear parkers or something. But, you know, around here, every month is a question mark. If you do an outside wedding here, when? When can you do one? You can't count on anything. I mean, my kids, two years in a row in the summer, got married outside. So you can see why I'm a little bit over them, okay? The first one, of course, it was great because we got the uh, ceremony. and As soon as we're done with the ceremony, it started pouring, but pretty much muddy mess and uh, everything. Last year, we had that drought. You know how that drought lasted all of summer until the day before and the day of Cameron's wedding, <laughs> and then it poured. So you you just... You just can't plan an outside wedding, I'll tell you. There's some craziness around here with outside weddings. But it it's a gamble, you know? But brides were also superstitious about the days of the week. It says a popular rhyme goes marry on Monday for health, Tuesday for wealth, Wednesday the best day of all, Thursday for crosses, Friday for losses, and Saturday for no luck at all. When do everybody get married in uh, America? Saturday! No luck at all. Maybe that's the reason why we have about a 50% divorce rate. Hello, people. Wednesday. Let's change this up. So anyway, all these things are just superstition, obviously. Marriage is not about luck. I'm going to tell you what marriage is. Hard work, okay? I'm going to tell you. It is hard work. And no matter where or when or what time of year, I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a time what comes in every service where the minister asks the couple to repeat vows. It's at that moment, and they could write their vows, they could just repeat vows, but basically what they're gonna do at that moment is they're gonna say that no matter what, I vow to stay with you forever. That's what it's all about, right? No matter what, richer for poor, better for worse, sickness and health, till death do us part. Okay? So we have this whole thing. And you know, it's really interesting because we talk about weddings and we go to weddings and we listen to all those things. And actually, they always have those, the scripture reference, you know, the first Corinthians, it talks about the, you know, what love is not boastful, love is not. They have all those different scripture references in there and you're all trying to like make sense of it all. And you know, trying to figure out what they're actually trying to say. But, you know, marriage is actually an interesting thing because God actually uses marriage in a way to us to describe and see how we feel here on earth. We can really take it and look at that, and really it can resemble our faith in Jesus Christ and how that works, that whole relationship there too. And interestingly enough, our Lord and Savior uh, Jesus speaks of the relationship that we have really in terms of marriage. He actually calls himself the bridegroom, and he calls the church his bride, you know. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I know this is where, you know, men out there, you're probably all concerned. Wedding vows, marriage, wedding, tool, roses, cake, lace. Not much manliness there, is there? Nope. But how many of you guys out there have conceded most anything when you got married? Because you're going to marry the woman that you love so much. You'll put up with anything at that moment, don't you? You'll wear a big old flower. You'll wear what she says to wear. And we're going to put flowers everywhere. And you'll be like, okay, great. Lace this. Lace that. All right. You know, you just kind of go along with it. Men have been doing this for centuries. They're on this ride, basically. I mean, there's very few men that really get involved. I think Terry actually planned his wedding a little bit more so, didn't you, Terry? You had more to do with it? Yeah, I think so. I think Terry actually got along, involved in it. You know, a lot of times, though, guys don't. Guys are just like, whatever you want, honey. Whatever you want, honey. They're just like, let's just get through this. Let's check this off. Let's be done. That's all they want. But i tell you, when you're marrying your woman of your dreams, I'm going to tell you, you're going to concede to most anything that they want. And uh, sometimes men have a harder time with these kind of things. But I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you this straight up. Get over it. Get over the whole femininity part of it. You know, sometimes you just have to embrace. Embrace the feminine side of who you are. You're just going to have to deal. For the next four weeks, embrace it. Because you're going to hear about some things that how the Bible actually describes our faith. So, some of the greatest men who've ever lived obviously spoke words of devotion and probably said flowery words and things to their wives during their wedding vows that they're like, I don't know how this is ever going to go because this really is sounding really unmasculine, you know, when you say these things. But they say it because it's what it is. But a lot of times, you know, men have a hard time with it because their guys give them, you know, they rib each other and say, oh, you know, that's, would you say, you know, to your girlfriend? And you say that to your wife and all this, and it's like, yeah, because you love them, you know? You love them. You say things that you wouldn't want another guy really to hear you say, you know, but you do. But I'm going to tell you something. This is one of those messages But I can honestly tell you, truthfully, I have street cred. I have street cred. I can talk to you about marriage 30 years this October that we've been married. Four years dating before, I know what marriage is about. (laughs) High highs, low lows. I know what it's about. Relationship with Jesus, I'm going to tell you, I know. I've lived it for 20 years. High highs, low lows. Same thing, no different. And I'm going to tell you, I have, I have the wherewithal I can tell you this stuff. I feel like I have a little wisdom in this. I can, I can try to impart something to you. It's going to be hard work. No matter what you do, it's hard work. So a lot of times, though, um, you know, people in their relationship with Jesus, they really don't understand the devotion, the commitment, all those different things that come with it. Just like in our relationships as uh, couples, you know. And what happens in a lot of relationships, I think, is what happens when you go to plan a wedding is it becomes more of your your whole thought and your whole concept and your whole mindset. And you get caught more up in the idea of planning a wedding than you do understanding that it's about a marriage, you know. And it's no different, really, in our faith with Jesus. The same things can happen as soon as you get into a church and people start talking about salvation, the salvation experience, accepting Jesus as their Savior. They can get caught up in that moment, this moment of teary-eyed emotion, and not understanding what, really, a long haul it is going to be, what more of a commitment, and what more of an uh, idea of what goes with this. You know, this selflessness and this dedication and the devotion that you're supposed to have, obviously, in marriage, but also in our faith with Jesus. You know, both are long-haul type things, you know? And that might not sound very romantic, but you know what? It's not always romantic. I can tell you after 30 years in a marriage, it's different. It's not maybe the breathlessness of romance, but it's different. It's comforting. It's stable. It's security. And it's deeper love, you know, instead of just the fleeting feelings of love. It's a different thing. I mean, there's something very, very comfortable and really, like, comforting to know that you can pretty much yell and scream and you look at each other and go, all right, bye, love ya, have a good day, be safe. You know, that's what you do. It's just what happens in marriage. You know, it kind of changes. You don't have to feel like you have to cling to each other as you walk out the door and say, please, honey, understand I love you no matter what. Come home. It's like you really, like, seriously want to just kick them out the door sometimes but then say, love ya, See you later. It just happens. It just happens. You know? But, you know, the thing is marriage and our relationship needs to be steady, I mean, it, it needs to be more steadfast, like lasting, committed, that idea. And obviously marriage today isn't necessarily like that. And you know, a lot of times people don't look at their relationship like that with a couple. They don't, they don't understand that there's hard times. I think really some of the biggest things is women get caught up in this idea of romance, romance novels. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there is a lot, a lot that comes with marriage. And I'll tell you, it's not always going to be breathless. And I think women need to understand that because it's a different thing that comes into it. But a lot of times people have a hard time staying together and they have a hard time staying devoted to one another. And I think it does come from the fact that people look at marriage wrongly in the first place. It is the idea going into it to understand in a wedding relationship but also in your faith that it's a better for worse situation. It's a richer for poorer situation. You know, It's in sickness and in health situation. That's the way it's going to be. And America and in other cultures, they have this weird time that obviously we know when the guy proposes, right? He gives you the ring, puts it on your finger and says, will you marry me? It's all great. And you think, okay, this is wonderful. We're, re- we're betrothed to one another. But that doesn't always mean the same thing. A lot of times with guys, it's like, well, until that other ring goes on the, fa- the finger, this other one, it's a... Well, we're not married yet. Well, until that ring goes on your finger, for good, you can still play around, you can do what you want. And that's not really what other cultures do. Our, our culture is different than that. It's a different way of looking at things. You know, it's, it's basically, people have to understand with their relationship and marriage that, um, you know, like the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, the road to divorce is also paved with good intentions. You have to be really committed and understand that there's a lot that's going to come in with this. And because intentions not going to help you celebrate anniversaries. Anniversaries will only come in your marriage and also in your faith if you've really put some effort into this. So today, before I even get to the promises of the vows, because we're going to continue on, we're going to kind of go through some of these different vows in the next couple of weeks. You know, the for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health and to death do us part. We're going to talk about those different things in the next couple weeks, but we're going to talk about them in our relationship with Jesus, more so, because it is that whole understanding that God used this example for us to look at and and model our faith in him. So before we do this, and we're actually going to give those things, I want to give you some background, because I think a lot of people are still going to be struggling. They're going to be like, I still don't understand exactly what you're saying. You know, it sounds so simple, but how are you going to, like, how how are you going to explain this to me? This is This hard thing of, like, people have a hard time understanding the fact that they are the bride of Christ. You know, women, we can kind of get a little bit more. We can maybe understand it. We can kind of wrap our minds around this, the idea that we're a bride, because we hear it in, you know, the world that we're the bride. Now, men, when I tell you, you're going to be the bride of Christ, you're always like, whoa, what does that mean? That's kind of (laughs) creepy. It's not creepy. It's just the fact that you're part of the church, and the churches of people who really truly love Jesus Christ. So when he says that, he says that you're going to be the ones that are going to you are basically betrothed to him. That you are going engaged to be married to him someday. Now, it's not weirdly, it's just truthful. So the culture, though, I want to go back a little bit more to the culture in Jesus' time. And we all know that Jesus spoke in parables, right? And he used a lot of the cultural things that are going on. I mean, there's a reason why he talked about harvest and farming and planting and all those different things, because it was a cultural thing. There's a reason why he talked about sheep and shepherds, because there were sheep and shepherds walking around, doing all those things, so he used those things. But then he also talked about a lot of the different aspects of what's going to take place in our salvation, And the way he talked about it, it there's a reason why he used it is because it was a cultural norm in their society and how actually men proposed to women and how the marriage actually took place. So he actually used all this. And it totally makes sense that you can hear about all this stuff in the Jewish tradition because Jesus was what? Jewish. We know this. So the fact is he was Jewish and he goes back and he explains all this because these people that he's witnessing to and talking to have all grown up in this cultural norm of how things are done. So he tries to explain this to him, and what's really interesting is that the fact that um, you know Jesus has all these different ways of explaining things to him, and, and people at that time probably really understood more and grasped what he was trying to say. Unfortunately, there's been a lot lost in translation. In America, we've heard all these different terms being spoken of in the in the church. We've heard them before spoken, but we didn't understand the natural signification in what was spoken because it was actually a cultural Jewish way that he was explaining. So I'm going to kind of go through and explain this a little bit more to you. Um, obviously, in, in the background with the Jewish people, were much different culturally. They don't propose like we propose. You know, they don't get down on one knee and give a ring. In fact, you only get a ring when you get married. That's it. That's the only time you're going to get a ring is then. You don't get a ring. It is not something that you get at the beginning. What you get instead is this idea of and just asking is what it's all about. And, um, but what was interesting is even though they just ask, they were as good as good could be married. Basically, at that moment, they were as married as married could be. When you were betrothed, you might as well figure you are married, and that's it. You know, there was no we'll-wait-and-see attitude. Well, the ring's not on the finger yet. There was this idea and this understanding that you belong to that person, and that's it. When a young man, a young Jewish man, would want to propose to a a woman, a bride-to-be, he would bring three things with him. A marriage contract, you know. He'd bring a dowry, which was the money that he was going to give to the bride's family to, to basically buy her. And he was going to bring wine. Those three things that he brought, he'd pour the wine. And what he'd do is he'd set it down in front of the, the woman. And he'd ask her, if she wanted to marry him, to drink it. Take a drink from that wine glass is what it was about. And if she would drink from the cup, that would mean that they would be betrothed, that they were engaged to be married. They would be married soon. That's what it was all about. Now, if she didn't drink from the cup, that meant you're dead to me. Go away. I never want to see you again kind of thing. He was on to the next person. But if she accepted, the young guy would jump up and say, I go and prepare a place for you. That's what he would say. And then he'd go back to his father's house and he'd start building a bridal chamber for his wife to be. That's what it was all about. Interestingly enough, in the culture of Jesus' time, The men weren't the ones that decided. The the bridegroom wasn't the one who decided when it was time to go get the bride. The dad was. The dad, the father of the house, was the one who decided if that bridal chamber was good enough. And if it was good enough, then he could go back and claim his bride. His son could go back and claim his bride. But not until that was the way it was. And only the father of the bridegroom knew when it was time. That was it. See, this is perfect because we've heard these same scriptures being spoken for years and years and years in the church. Matthew 24, 36 in the New Living Translation says, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When Jesus comes back, what does he say? He says, only my Father knows when I'm going to return. Jesus himself does not even know. Right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And when God says, go down and get your your church, your bride, then he'll come get us. And that's what it's about. Now, the young woman, her job was always to be ready, right? And that's in salvation too. That's why the the Bible tells us to be ready. We're supposed to always be prepared because we don't know when Jesus is coming back, right? We have no clue. That's why he says be ready. Be willing to understand that anything could happen when it could happen. And these young women were supposed to, to know these things and be ready. And they would light a lamp at night so they could be ready if he came in the middle of the night, like a thief in the night, like just someone showing up in the middle of the night to claim the bride, because it could happen. And actually, they would do that quite a bit. It would be something fun that they would do in those times. Well, Matthew 25, 1 through 13 says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise." The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. See, again, cultural. It's a cultural point that Jesus was making. Jesus makes these points to us in the Bible, and if you've gone through churches for years, you hear these things, and you're like, I don't really understand some of these things, what it is all this made sense to the people that they were talking to. Like I say, we're really missing something. That's one of the things that I really think is so important to learn, the background of the, the, Jesus, Jesus aspect, the Jewish Jesus aspect of our faith, because then you're going to understand more of really what the Bible's talking about throughout it. So like these young Jewish bride, we have no idea. We have no idea when Jesus, our bridegroom, is going to come back for us. We don't know. We're just supposed to be prepared. He says, there's some who are going to be foolish— and are going to miss it. And there's going to be some who are wise and are going to notice and be prepared. Now, the Bible says everyone will see it. Everyone will know. It says every knee will bow to Jesus. The only difference is whether or not he recognizes you and you're going with him or not. See, that's, that's the whole point. You know, I want him to know I'm going and that's it. First Thessalonians 5.2, Paul says, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night just like the bridegroom coming for the bride. That's exactly what's going to take place. When we least expect it, the Bible says it's going to be just like any other time. What's interesting, he says there's going to be marriages. He makes a point that says there's going to be weddings going on. Weddings, celebrations. Everything's going to seem as normal as normal can be. But that's when Jesus will return. See, I I think this is one of the things I had a really hard time when I first became a believer and really understood, because I was 28 years old. I lived a whole long time without understanding who Jesus was. And I tried reading the Bible when I was younger and all those different things. Nothing made sense. But, you know, then after I, like, finally got saved, I started to realize, I'm like, Wow. There's so much more to this than I ever realized what Jesus was trying to say to us and what he was trying to do and all the different points. I mean, there was so much more meaning, and I didn't really get this, and I didn't understand that, that Jesus was going to not just, that he didn't just die or come as a baby and live and die on the cross. No one ever explained to me all those years that Jesus was coming back for me. And I think that's where the biggest mis- disconnect that there is, is people aren't told that there's something more left. See, the thing is, if you just take Jesus and just take the fact that he died on the cross for you and that you have this forgiveness, that's great. But where is your expectancy? See, my expectancy is I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back for me. I'm excited. I walk in the cemetery in the morning, you know what, and I look at those graves and I think someday these graves are going to open up and there's going to be people that are going to fly up and they're going to go. Some people are going to go to heaven, some people aren't. I mean, but it's an interesting concept, isn't it? This whole idea of what God has, there's so much more. And I never knew all that. I never knew that it all existed. You know, it was just this idea that Jesus was Jesus. Not this idea that there was something more for us than just what's here. The Bible goes through and talks about those people who've already died in their faith. That they're the first ones going to rise. They get to go first with Jesus. And then us in in the twinkling of an eye that we get to go. You know, all this that Jesus had planned, this is amazing. This is an amazing thing. But, you know, when he used these things, all these things were no coincidence. Like I said, these parables, these messages, all these things were culturally normal to those people. They were understandable. They were traditional. They were Jewish customs. So he described everything the way it was, that we are the bride of Christ, that he is our bridegroom, you know, And I'll tell you what, the same thing that Jesus, you know, we had seen with the Jewish man proposing is the exact same thing that Jesus does for us. Jesus has this thing when he comes to us, he does the exact same thing. He comes from his father's house, and he comes with a marriage contract to us, which is basically the new covenant, the new covenant that's between us and him now. The old one is past. The new one is here. Him dying on the cross for us is the new covenant, is the new um, contract. You know, he died on the cross for us. The wine, that's his blood. You know, the dowry, he paid a big price for us, did he not? He paid a big price for us. And you know, the, the thing is, with a, a bridegroom, I'm going to tell you, when he proposed to his wife, he paid that price, he was going to go back for it. It didn't matter how long that bridal chamber took to be built. When you spent that much money, you're going back for that woman. You're not going to forget her. When Jesus died on the cross for us, he's not going to forget us. He's going to come back for us. And that's what's all so great about it. John 14:2 it says, There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? So he says there's going to be a place I'm preparing for you. Now, men, I'm going to tell you something. you just got to get out of the whole girl thing. Get, out, get your head out of that femininity thing and just understand that this is a blessing to you. It doesn't matter if you're a girl or you're a guy. You get to go with Jesus. It's not feminine. It's salvation. <laughs> get over it. So we who've accepted Jesus' forgiveness, what it says is that what we did is we accepted that cup. We drank from it. We said yes. We said yes. We accept your proposal. We're married to you. We're betrothed. We are now going to be married. Basically, what it was when we did that is we said we accept your Dying in our place. When you died in our place, Jesus, we accept now that we're married to you. That someday we get to go on to heaven. We get to go live in your father's house. You know, it's just the way it is. We're betrothed. A definition of a betrothed is a mutual promise or contract for a future marriage. We're going to have a future marriage. A broken engagement. We all met. I mean, we hear those Sad, sad stories. There's nothing worse. I mean, you hear these women that plan these weddings and they're engaged to be married and then up to the last minute somebody says, you know, I, I changed my mind. I don't want to be married. It's broken engagement. And what do we say? Well, you're better off. You're better off to know now instead of getting married is what we tell them, right? It's much better. But I'm going to tell you, it is a painful, costly horrible thing that no one should have to endure to have a broken engagement you know because your expectations are there you expect to live your life with a person forever and ever and all of a sudden it doesn't happen I'm going to tell you walking away from Jesus believe me you don't think it hurts him it totally hurts as you walk away from him every single time it's devastating it was costly because he died for you I'm going to tell you, it's one of those things that you have to really think about. You know, the thing is, every single time that we, when we do communion, you know, we talk about the fact that, you know, why we do communion. You know, we say that, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Remember that I died on the cross for you. But every single time, that's what he says in the Bible. It says, weigh the cost. Before you take a drink, he says, weigh the cost and see where you really are in your faith with me. He says, because there's many who have drank in it unworthily. He says, when they've drinking it unworthily, that's why many of you are sick, and some of you have even died. Because what we, we say every single time we take communion is that we again are saying, yes, Jesus, we're engaged to be married. We're going to be married someday. We're going to go on to heaven with you someday. When you come for the church, I'm part of the church, and I'm going to get to go. That's what we say. So if we don't really mean it, you can see why a lot of times in the Bible they call Us, who are not truly living it, what does he call you? Adulterers. He says you're adulterers because you accept the fact that you're married to me. And I told you in them days, if you're married, betrothed to be married, you're married. So when he says you're an adulterer, he means the fact that you've already said you're proposing, you're going to marry me. So now when you go off and you do all these different things, what you are doing is you're saying that you're not faithful. You're not faithful to me. You are an adulterer now. That's what the Bible actually tells us. Well, Revelation 19:9 9 says, "And the angel said to me, write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb." And he added, "These are the true words that come from God." See, there's a wedding feast that's going to take place someday. When Jesus comes for us, we get to go up and he says that he'll drink the cup with us anew for the first time again when we get up there with him. That's the wedding feast. You, gotta take the, you guys got to get out of this whole understanding of thinking this is weird. This is Jesus' words. This is some pe- person just making it up. This is Jesus' words that he explained to the church. You know, this wedding supper is big. You get to go on and celebrate and have a place to live with Jesus forever. It's a pretty awesome concept. You know, I never really even noticed until, like, um, I started really doing this, this message series Think about the fact that, you know, it's really kind of an interesting thing that Jesus turned water into wine, that his first miracle was that. Kind of starts his miracles start with a wedding and ends with a wedding, the wedding feast. It's kind of an interesting concept that he has such a point to be made with weddings. This is why a lot of people are very, very protective of marriage because we understand that it's a God-given thing. It's a contract between man and God. Something we do here on earth, but it's also bigger than that. It's between God and mankind. So it's something for you to think about. It's something for you to really like think upon. When we talk about weddings, when you go to a wedding, start to understand the bigger concepts behind of what's really taking place. I want to pray for all of you got everybody um, here today. Because, you know, I'm gonna tell you, we don't want to be like those foolish virgins that are out there waiting, and then do things stupidly and miss it when Jesus comes back. So I want to give you an opportunity, if you want to close your eyes, bow your heads, just if anybody here has never accepted or really truly asked God for forgiveness. I mean, there's there's salvation. I mean, there's this idea of understanding that when we say, yes, we know Jesus, but when we say, yes, Jesus, I accept your forgiveness in my place, that it's different. It's a different concept. It's the idea of saying it's a personal thing. See, it's not just something that you can just, you know, say that just happened. It's it's something that happened for you. Now, I've always described it as the fact that if you can look at Jesus dying on the cross and think that when he died, at least a couple of those slaps on the on his back with them them leather and bones and all those pieces were one made for me, one because I deserved the punishment. That's what Jesus says. So if you've never really truly just said, God, I truly do want your forgiveness. I do accept that you died in my place personally. If you have never done that, like you really meant it like from your heart, if you just like raise your hand and let me know if you've never done that. If you have, God bless you. Then hopefully you're expectantly waiting for his return. Hopefully you understand that there's something more than just this earth and what we get. This is a great blessing to be given, but there's so much more that he has in store for us. I want to pray for you, okay? Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Father, for your presence in our lives. We're thankful, Father, that you have promised us so much more, Lord, that um, you've died for us, but, Lord, also that you live for us, walk with us on a daily basis, but also that you give us a future and a hope that this is not all there is, that there is so much more besides just what's going on in this world, that there's a bigger and better place for us in the future, Lord. We're thankful that we have this, Lord, especially when we see the devastation and the destruction and the pain that's in the world, Lord. We're thankful, Father, that there is uh, a greater hope that comes from following after you. I pray, Father, that you would just bless each person that's here, bless their families, help them to grow closer to you, help their eyes to be seeing you, Lord, and their ears to hear you. And Lord, we're thankful for all that you do for us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.